It's on page 811 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Meet us where we're at. Lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I'm going to need your help starting the sermon this morning. I'm going to need you to play a little game of follow the leader with me. So I'm going to do three hand motions, and I need you all to participate. All right? The first one is this. Okay? Second one is this. Third one is this. Don't knock your neighbor out. (laughs) This. 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 All right, now you do it without me. See if you can do it. See if you remember. Hey, you are a smart church. Amazing. You got it. You got it. We will come back to those motions. I'm not going to tell you what those are for right now. We'll come back to those. As we read this text, I think there's the big idea here is that Jesus is teaching us how to pray secretly, simply, and strategically. In, in this passage, the, the Lord's Prayer, we've all heard it, right? I mean, this, this prayer is so prevalent in our culture. Whether you've been at church for a long period of time or not, you've surely heard the Lord's Prayer at a funeral, at a wedding, in movies, in music. It's all over the place. And some of you grew up in churches where you probably recited the Lord's Prayer every single week, and we recite it every now and then here at Park Community Church, but this is a, a well-known prayer a well-known poem prayer. And oftentimes when things are so well-known, we become kind of inoculated to it and we miss out on its power and its truth and its substance. And so this morning, I'm excited to dig through this common prayer and see how it's so uncommon for us. It's a common prayer. We're familiar with the words. We're familiar with the flow. But the, the strategic nature of this prayer, what Jesus is teaching us here is very uncommon to the human heart, and to the human mind. It's even uncommon to those of us who grew up saying it. We have to dig into this to really understand what Jesus is getting at. And to simplify that, to summarize that for us this morning, I want to share with you that Jesus is teaching us to pray secretly, simply, and strategically. Last week when we saw Jesus teaching us about giving to the needy, he also called out hypocrites. And he said, you should give your money in secrecy. 
Don't give your money for show. Don't give your money to the needs of others to be affirmed and approved and praised and patted on the back by others. This morning, Jesus starts out with his teaching on prayer saying the same thing. Verse 5, it says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Again, people who say one thing and do another. People who want to be recognized or praised. People who want to be thought of as spiritual or religious or humble, but yet inwardly their hearts are proud. They really want recognition and praise. They want people to honor them. They care less about honoring God and they care more about personal honor. And so Jesus here is instructing his followers. He's giving them commands and expectations that he has for his people. And he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Now, I realize that I'm probably most likely of the one being condemned in this passage, right? Because I stand up front and pray. The point is, Jesus is, he actually isn't saying don't pray out loud. Don't pray in front of people. He, he's trying to get at the heart of why do you pray? Do you pray to God about his will and his kingdom? Or do you pray to impress others? That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand up and pray in the synagogues. Lord, have mercy on me as I pray in the church every Sunday. They love to pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So he's, he, he's here instructing his people not to be people of prayer for recognition, but to be people of prayer of authenticity. And he tells us how when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus here is teaching his followers that, that you need to have this intimate, close, genuine relationship with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer isn't coming into a religious assembly and saying the right words and following the right pattern and impressing others with our knowledge, our theology, the things that we've read, the things that we've learned, the things that we heard. Prayer isn't standing up in front of... Prayer, genuine prayer isn't, isn't the courage to stand in front of people and pray or to sit in a, in a small group, a community group, or a group of friends and be willing or able to pray out loud. Some of you struggle to pray out loud. You have to know here that Jesus isn't, isn't saying that you need to get there, that you have to be a person of public prayer. In fact, he's saying those who can pray privately, those who can pray in secret, those who have this intimate communion and relationship with me, get it. Again, he, he's not saying don't pray out loud, otherwise we would be in trouble. I would be in trouble. Ben would be in trouble. We pray every week as we gather. But he's saying what's the heart and the motivation behind your public prayer? Do you have a private prayer life? Do you come before God in secret and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you? Do you have this secret life, this hidden life? Usually when we hear the word hidden life, we think about like sin and shame, right? Oh, what's in that person's hidden life? What's behind that person's closet that nobody can see? This passage here is telling us that we ought to have this intimate, secret, hidden life with God where we have this deep fellowship and communion and intimate conversation with God the Father. And as God has that relationship with us, he rewards us with spiritual fruit, with, with spiritual intimacy, with closeness. And so Jesus first here is teaching his followers to pray secretly. Church, do you have an intimate deep, personal prayer life with your Father? 
Do you communicate with him? Do you, do you listen to him? Do you speak to him? Do you reveal the thoughts of your heart to him? And do you let him into that secret, intimate space that you close the rest of the world off to? Jesus is inviting us there. He's saying, I, your, your father Remember, we're adopted. This is our identity as a church. We are sons and daughters of God. And so we are adopted by him. And Jesus is instructing his followers, if you would come and follow me, if you would leave everything and follow me, you will be adopted into the family of God. And your father longs to have an intimate, close, personal, deep relationship with you. He doesn't desire to conform you into some religious some religious figure that knows how to operate in religious circles. He wants you in the still, in the quiet, in the secret place. And so Jesus here is inviting his followers to find intimacy with the Father. Secondly, he, prays us, he teaches us to pray simply. Look at verses 7 through 9. 7 through 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Here Jesus is saying, you, you can't impress God with your words. This is really good news for those of you who, who feel underdeveloped theologically, like you hear other people pray and you're like, I don't even know what that word means. This passage is telling us that, that God isn't impressed with our words, that He's not impressed with our theology. And this is also really good News to those of you who think that God is impressed with your words and your theology. Stop it. He's not. He wants your heart. Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles. So both the Jews and the Gentiles in this day, they would, they would get into these patterns of thinking that certain prayers and certain patterns of prayers and, and certain words would get them more favor with God, that God would listen to certain words more and they would have these, these phrases that they would repeat over and over or that they would chant over and over and think, if we pray the right way, then God is more bound to hear us and to listen to us and to honor our requests. Or if we use long words, if we use many words, if we use big words, if we use theological words, then, then God will be impressed with us and God will, will affirm the knowledge that we've acquired and surely God's going to appreciate the knowledge that I've required, right? I've spent my time reading, I've spent my time studying, I've spent my time listening to others, and I know all these things about God. But what we see throughout the entirety of the New Testament is that information does not always translate into transformation. Jesus here is, is sharing with us this upside-down kingdom. He expects his followers to be people who live lives that are different than the world that live this radical, upside-down life. And so he's saying, I don't care what's in your head. I, I don't want you to come to me with empty phrases that you've learned. I want you to come to me with honesty in your heart. This puts us all on the level playing ground that we come before God as needy children. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we've already been taught that, that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Jesus here is giving us this example that our, our prayer life is one of poverty. It's one of need. It's one of a, a child and a father. It's not one of trying to impress God with what we've acquired as far as knowledge. Prayer is communion. It's conversation. It's speaking and listening. 
I don't enjoy conversations with my kids because of the level of depth that they can bring to the conversation. Have you had a conversation with my son Judah? <laughs> my daughter Avery? My two and a half year old Oakley? I mean, she, she has a lot of words. She thinks she's smart. I can intellectually talk circles around her. Fairly certain about that. It, it'll probably last her another year or two and then she'll pass me up. But I love having conversations with my kids. And it's not because they can meet me on an intellectual level. It's not because they, they have these big words and these huge concepts and, and, and we can sit down and have this deep conversation. And there's time and a place for that. Some of you just love intellectual, deep conversation. And, and God will go there with you and he will put people in your life that will do that with you. But I think the basis and the point here is that Jesus expects us primarily to just be simple people who pray simply. I love conversation with my kids, not because of the words and the topics and the depths that we can probe, but because of the depth of the relationship that we have, the intimacy that we have, the, the, the vulnerability that they share with me, the honesty that they give me. I love relationship with my kids. I love conversation and prayer is a conversation between us and God. So if we're using this father-child imagery, which Jesus uses here, I think it's safe to say that, that Jesus here is expecting his followers to have this simple prayer life where we come before God with honesty. That we open up about our fears. That we listen to him speak to us. We don't do all of the talking, but we do some listening as well. Jesus says when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. I mean, how many times do we use certain theological words or phrases just in an empty way? We spout out certain words that, and, and we forgot the substance of what they even mean. Do not heap them up like the Gentiles, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus here teaches his people to be a simple people to have an honest, authentic relationship, not one built on a religious facade or religious expectation or theological category, but rather personal intimacy. That's what God wants with you, church. He doesn't want you to fall into a theological category. He wants relational, personal intimacy with you. Amen? And then thirdly, he teaches us how to pray strategically. Jesus here is teaching us how to pray strategically. Strategy is a military term. It means to come up with a plan of action or a plan of attack by using what you have to produce the solution you intend. Okay, so strategy is this military term. It means, okay, what, who are the soldiers that we have? What are the weapons that we have? What are the tools that we have? What, what's the landscape of where this battle is going to take place? What... what soldiers, warriors, does our enemy have? What tools, what weapons do they have? Where are we going to collide with them? Based off of that, we have to come up with a strategy. If we want to expand our kingdom or protect our kingdom, we need to have a strategy for warfare. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is, is clearly, in, in the entire book of Matthew, he's clearly instructing us that he is establishing a kingdom. He is advancing a kingdom on earth and in all of militaries, nations, what they do is their militaries come up with a strategy to both protect and advance. 
their kingdom. They believe that their government has something to offer the world, that, that we can bring some of our governmental structure into these other countries that are struggling, or sometimes it's this proud thing, like we just want to take over so we can have more. Well, Jesus, in a, in a similar way, is giving his followers a strategy. If we are his sons, his daughters, if we've been adopted into his family, Scripture also calls us warriors, it calls us soldiers. We are the king's soldiers to go out and advance his kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom isn't like the kingdoms of the world. He, he doesn't send us out with bombs and tanks and guns to divide and conquer. He sends his people out on their knees in prayer. Because his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom where people are invited into an abundant life. It's a kingdom where he says, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Do you see Jesus' kingdom? It's, it's this upside down, it's this kingdom of personal transformation. It's not a kingdom of top-down rule and order. It's this, this kingdom of bottom-up, grassroots, internal change. And so Jesus just like any military general, gives his followers, gives his soldiers a strategy. And the strategy is prayer. And, and I think he gives us kind of these three strategies here in the Lord's Prayer. And I, this is where these, the hand thing is going to come back into play now. The first one here. Well, well verse 9. Let's look at verse 9. He says, pray then like this. So he's getting into the Lord's Prayer now. So that's all kind of the context of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus expects us to pray secretly and, uh, what was the second one? Secretly and simply, and now strategically. Verse 9, he says, pray then like this. It's important to note that when Jesus says pray then like this, he's, he's giving us a pattern, he's giving us a strategic way to pray. He's not saying pray these exact words to produce something. I mean, some people get very wrapped up into the minutia, and some people are like, well, the King James Version is different. And the Bible that we're holding, the ESV, leaves out some of it. So am I allowed to pray the King James Version? Can I, can I add in those words that King James added in? Or Luke, in the book of Luke, the Lord's Prayer is, is written and worded a little bit differently. Which one should we do? Which one should we use? And people get caught up on these small little side tangents. Look at the point. Jesus says, pray then like this. He doesn't say pray this. He doesn't say pray this prayer word for word. He doesn't say divide your churches and, and have theological arguments over which prayer you're going to use and whether or not King James was right to add in some words. I mean, anytime we pray without praying directly scripture, we're adding in words to prayer, right? We have that liberty because prayer is conversation. Prayer is communication. Prayer is both listening to and speaking to God. And so I want us to notice verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this. He's giving us a strategic pattern. He's not giving us a specific how to pray these words and then this will incite God's power to do something that you can never do on your own. He's giving us a strategic pattern to yield ourselves to God and to follow him and to see God do his incredible work to see God expand his kingdom in our own lives and in our relational spheres of influence, but he's not getting caught up in kind of these legalistic arguments of the minutia of the prayer. And so here's what he teaches us. The first one is your. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the posture. Our Father in heaven, He is hallowed. That means holy. Holy is your name. You are above us. You came before us. You are holy other than us. You are perfect. You are set apart. That's how we pray. We start with who God is and what God has done, not the the small little microscopic need of our life. We'll get there. But the pattern of prayer that Jesus gives us, this strategic pattern, is to first lift up our hands. And whether or not you actually do this in prayer, I I don't know. I I don't care. That's not the point of these hand motions. But I want us to, to remember these motions. And as we pray, as we sing, we're praying. When we sing at Park Community Church, when, when we are opening up God's Word and interacting with it, that's all prayer. Prayer isn't just when I say, pray with me, and we do this. That's not prayer. Prayer is conversation. Prayer is when you stand and you sing. And, and this morning when we sing, O Lord of our salvation, who is like our God? You lift your hands up and you acknowledge that our Father is in heaven. He's above us. He's over us. But He's also with us. He's in us. He's near us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. This is a posture of prayer. We often do this in worship, but when you see somebody's hands go up in church or in a worship set, or maybe when you feel drawn to lift your own hands up, this is why you do it, to acknowledge that God is holy. Three times here the word your is used. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. You are, you are holy. You are other. To be holy simply means to be set apart. Like, I'll, I'll explain it to you this way. All sports are great. I'm a sports guy. I love sports. Baseball is on a whole different level than all other sports. Yeah? Who's with me? Put your hand up nice and high. Yes. The few, the chosen. I set baseball apart from all other sports. Yes, I like sports, sports are good, but then there's baseball. It's on a whole different level. Okay, I'm not gonna take that too far because we'll get into heresy, but, but, it, but that helps us to understand what holiness means, what it means that God's name is hollowed, it's other. There's creation and there's, there's created beings, but then there's God. God is like no other. God created all other. God is holy like the sun. I mean, the sun, at the distance that we are from it, it produces life. It gives life. It warms things up. It's going to help spring come into bloom here soon. But if you get too close to the sun, is the sun so glorious? The sun is powerful. It's it's good. It's glorious but it's other. It's different than us. We can't can't waltz into the sun's presence without being burnt. In the same way, God is holy. He's glorious. He is good, but he is different. He's different than us. He's set apart. Jesus here is teaching us to start our prayer life with hallowed be your name. And again, you don't have to repeat that exact word, but here's the posture of prayer that when we have a genuine relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, our prayer starts with, with humility and, and humbleness before God. Hallowed be your name. Another posture in scripture is this. Face 
down. It's called falling prostrate before the Lord. So church, the question for us is, is our relationship with God, is our posture in prayer appropriate? Do we come to God first acknowledging His holiness, His grandeur, His beauty, His glory? And then do we, do we come to Him asking, as Jesus tells us to here in verse 10, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We need, to, we need to acknowledge that God is the one who has the full understanding of what ought to be done. And we should be asking God to advance His kingdom, not to advance or, or make more comfy our kingdom. How often are our prayers kind of self-centered? Like, if you really assess and think about your prayer life, how many of your prayers are about your own comfort, your own kingdom advancing. Like, God, give me a better job with more money. Well, what, what, what's the intent? I mean, do you actually genuinely want more money so that you can give it away to the needs of others? Or do you actually genuinely want more money so that you can buy more nice things for yourself? God, God help me get out of this circumstance because it makes my life so hard and difficult. And really, you're, you're thinking about your own kingdom. And so the posture of prayer is, your kingdom come. Whatever that looks like. That may mean I never get that job. That may mean my, my injury is never fully healed. Because you may use the thing that I think is good, that, that I want, that I'm asking for. You may actually, in your sovereign goodness, in your all-knowing power, you may know that that would actually hinder the advance of your kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The posture of prayer is to acknowledge that he is holy, that he is other, and that his kingdom, it's, it's to ask that he advance his kingdom and his will, not our kingdom and our will. Are you willing to submit to his decision, to his sovereignty, to his authority? When I was in college, I've shared this story here before, but I'll share it again just as a brief example. When I was in college, I, I was playing baseball and I tore the labrum in my shoulder. Five games into my first season, we were down in Florida and I tore my labrum and, and I was convinced that God's ministry role for me was to be an ambassador for him on my college baseball team. And so me and some other players and the coach, we prayed like crazy that God would heal my arm and he didn't heal it. And a direct result of my arm not being healed was that I got plugged into my last church and I ended up being on staff there for seven years, planting out of their City Vision Church and merging here. Honestly, if God had healed my arm, I don't know that I would have ended up at that church. And I don't know what God would have done with my life. It's so clear to me in hindsight to see that as I was praying and begging God to heal my arm, and I was convinced that my arm being healed would have been better for his kingdom and that it was his will. You ever been there? I mean, and, and this goes deep, right? God, God, heal and take away my cancer. How could your will be to, to, to bring my, my friend or my spouse or my kid home too early? God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Surely your will isn't for this pain and this suffering. But is our posture to say, holy, other is your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done. This doesn't mean we shouldn't pray specifically for healing and for things, but I'm always holding it with open hands that, God, whatever would more advance your kingdom and your will, let that thing be done. I have a, I have a friend, my best friend right now, is struggling with a back injury. He, he's been out of commission for months, can't drive, can't go to work. We've prayed over and over again, and, and in full faith. I mean, obviously faith and doubt, it's hard to separate those, but there's been moments where in full faith, praying, and, and we both, in an in, in extended network that he has, absolutely believes that God has the power to heal his back. Yet, for whatever reason, God hasn't healed his back. It's a slow, long, drawn-out process. So we have to trust that this is God Advancing his kingdom and seeing his will be done. William Phillips, in his book called Why We Pray, which is a great, very short book I recommend if you want to do some more reading on prayer. He says, and some, here's the context. Some people will say, well, if you throw in, if your will, like pray for healing or pray for God to do something miraculous, and then if you say, if it be your will, some people see that as a cop-out. But here Jesus is giving us this pattern And so William Phillips, in his book, he says, saying, if it be your will, is not a lack of faith in prayer, especially when you're praying for the healing of someone you love. Some people will tell you that throwing that phrase in is evidence that you don't have faith that God will do it. And this is why you are not getting what you want. But it cannot ever be wrong to say, Lord, if it be your will, if we are praying for something that God has not seen fit to reveal directly and clearly in the scriptures. Amen? Let's pray with faith. Let's pray believing that God can do and does do miraculous in all things. But God, your will. You are holy. You are other. I am in submission to you. I am lifting your name on high. And I'm asking that your kingdom come and your will be done, whether it's through pain and suffering or whether it's through miraculous healing. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The second posture, this. Remember, let's let's do it together. Hands open. In this passage, there's three mentions of us. Starting in verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Us. This shows the brokenness and dependency of mankind. We are to acknowledge our daily need and trust his daily provision. Jesus teaches us to pray as a dependent people, to open up our hands and to ask. This symbolizes dependency. Jesus has already told us in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the needy. Last week we talked about the reality that that we all have needs and we're all needed. We're all needy and needed. This is the posture of dependency. Give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus' Jesus's followers heard this, they surely were thinking about Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16 is, is the story when the Israelites were out in the wilderness. God had led them out of Egypt, and they're out wandering in the wilderness, and they start to complain about being in the wilderness. They actually want to go back to slavery. They think that slavery in Egypt is better than wandering in the wilderness, and, the, and they start to dream about the food that they had as slaves in Egypt, because they're worried and concerned about what God is going to provide or that God won't provide in the wilderness. 
And so in Exodus chapter 16, God sends down manna from heaven. Bread from heaven. And, and he tells them to only take enough bread for the day. And, and he tests them in this. God provides bread in the morning and, and they all collect the amount of bread that they need for their family for the day. And he says, don't take any extra bread. And certain people in the community didn't trust God, right? Any of you that way? Like, I'm going to take a little extra because what if the bread doesn't come from heaven tomorrow? Sure, God said he's going to do this every day, but right now I can see it. I have it. I'm going to take this bread and I'm going to, I'm going to stuff a little bit into my bags for tomorrow. And so some people did this, and then guess what? When they opened up their bags that next day, that bread was moldy and rotten and full of worms. Because God said, trust me daily for what you need. And so every morning, he would send fresh new bread. And any time they would take more, it would get rotten and full of worms overnight. As a sign, as, as a teaching for his people to depend on him. And, and this is good for our soul. It's not because God has an ego and he wants people to be dependent on him. Like, I'm going to keep people under my thumb and needy on me. This is for us because, because we can't control life, can we? Some of you have been, a, been victims of a stock market crash where, where you saved up. You had your retirement set aside and ready for you, and then it crashed. And Jesus would remind you, Trust God. He's got your daily need in mind. Some of you have, have lost jobs. Some of you have struggled to find jobs. And, and actually finding daily bread, real food to get through the day, is not a given. And Jesus is saying to you, trust him for your daily bread. And, and those of you who are, are more well off, you've, you've been blessed with good jobs, and you have money in the bank, and you have retirement and savings, don't forget that that is all a provision from God. You didn't have your great pain job because of your abilities. God provided it for you. This is the posture of prayer. God, give us our daily bread. Meet our daily needs. Do you have that attitude in prayer? And do you wake up every morning hungry to see how God will provide? reminding yourself that regardless of what's in my bank, regardless of the things on the surface that look like are, are, are taken care of and okay, they could be gone like that, but also anything that I have is a gift from God above. Thank you, God. Thank you for providing my daily bread, Where, whether that comes out of the blue or whether that's because I have money in my bank account and I can go to Fresh Time and buy a loaf of bread or cub. Maybe some of you don't know what Fresh Time is. It's a grocery store. I mean, do, do we have, can, can you think of, about this mindset if we went about our lives that way when we go into the grocery store and we fill up our grocery cart? God, you provided this. Thank you. I'm trying to pr practice when we eat meals as a family, praying, I, I pray, um, Lord, thank you for providing this food and for mom preparing it. Like, that's just a phrase that I'm trying to pray at home to teach my kids and to remind my own heart that God provided it. Sure, we went to the grocery store and filled up our cart and brought it home, but, but why do we have a paycheck? Well, because God arranged our lives so that we could have a paycheck. And so, church, are we dependent on God? He's teaching us to pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. We'll talk about, more about that in a minute. As we also forgive our debtors. And lead us, not into, into temptation, 
but to deliver us from evil. To avoid temptation, to overcome temptation is a daily battle. So we come to God dependent. God, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Jesus showed us how to do that in Matthew chapter 4. We looked at it a few months ago. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 with me. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. James chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that God never tempts us. So any temptation we have isn't from God. And now God may lead us near temptation, but temptation comes from the brokenness within us and from Satan, from the devil, from the devil and his demons, the destroyed powers of earth, this, this fallen sect of angels who seek to rip people out of God's good rule and reign. And so here Jesus is instructing us to to pray, to ask God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's this dependency that when I wake up in the morning, I can't get through today on my own strength and power. I will be tempted. Temptations will come my way. And in my own strength and power, with my own discipline, with my own self-will, I cannot pull myself up by my bootstraps and overcome temptation. And if I overcome certain temptations in my own heart, that's going to produce pride in me. And so, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You are the deliverer. You are the one that we depend on. And I trust you to daily lead me by your grace. Lastly, forgive. Now, this is this posture. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Then verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. What does this symbolize? I mean, openness. I can't give my kids a hug like this. I can't give my wife a hug like this. This this doesn't communicate a reconciled relationship. This doesn't communicate that we're close, that we're intimate, that we're safe, that we're secure that we're reconciled. But, but when I do this, my kids can run into my arms and I can pull them close. When I do this, my, my wife and I can wrap each other in our arms. And in order to have that type of intimacy and closeness with a person, you need to be reconciled. And so Jesus here is saying the third part of the Lord's Prayer is reconciliation. It's that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. I mean, there's stories throughout the scriptures where where like the, the father, right, and the prodigal son, he comes running, he opens up his arms and sweeps him up and accepts him back in. But think about Jesus on the cross. Open arms. He says, Father, forgive them. Jesus, on the cross, nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He is opened up to God, bearing our sin and weight upon his shoulders. 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He welcomes us in. We are forgiven first and foremost by God. And then he calls us to go and forgive others. And this is, this is pretty interesting. In fact, what he says in verse 14 and 15, he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Just sit with that for a while. And, and think that through. Do, are, are you working towards having this posture towards people? I forgive you. You're welcomed in my presence. You're accepted in my presence. God's done that for me, so how could I not do that for you? And by the extent that I do that for you, it seems like he's saying this, this is the type of relationship that you have with God. Your relationship with other people mirrors your relationship with God. So if you live your life like this, closed off, afraid, stiff-arming, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to let people in, unwilling to be intimate with others. Seems like this is how your relationship with God is going to be. Closed off, guarded, protected, stiff-armed. But when we do this, come, let's talk face-to-face. Let's be together. Let's embrace one another. It seems like God's arms open wide. We are forgiven in Christ and welcomed in through him. Let's close this morning by just reading John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is on page 891 in the Pew Bible. I want to start in verse 28. and This is after Jesus multiplied fish and loaves to his followers. And they're asking him questions. Keep in mind the prayer from the Lord's Prayer, our daily bread. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they said to him, what, may, what must we do to be doing the good works of God? Isn't that like a common Christian question? Christians get caught up in what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? What are the religious duties? Tell me what to do and I will go do it. That's what the disciples are doing. Jesus, tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. How can we, how can we be accepted and welcomed and approved and praised by you? Tell us what to do. Verse 29, and Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. God, you are holy other. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life and that all those who come to you will never be thirsty or hungry again. As we take communion now, I pray that you would remind us of that. Pray that the the bread would remind us that you are the bread of life and that you are the one that we depend on daily. And as we drink the cup, would we be reminded that our sins have been forgiven and washed clean through your blood. We have been reconciled to you. And may we go and be reconcilers of you. We love you, Jesus. Pray that you would have your way. In your name, amen.